Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. The middle path, which lies at the heart of the Buddha's awakening. On one level, probably the most profound level, it concerns skillful approaches to life's challenges, where individuals get frequently caught between unhealthy dynamics, all or nothing extremes, vacillating between indulgence and abstaining, the middle path is about carving out an entirely different approach to how we engage in both consuming and relating to others and living our lives. So it is a pretty important uh, topic to say the least. And before we dive into exactly how the middle way or path um, plays out in our daily lives, uh, it's kind of important to talk a little bit about the life of the Buddha, because <clears throat> for one, the Buddha's life, as it's told in the Pali Canon and the early suttas, um, often in autobiographical teachings, uh, uh, the Buddha's life is very instructive. Uh, putting aside the idea that there, whether or not there was any historical Buddha, or whether it was more a compilation of various different teachers, my suspicion is probably the latter, because when you read the Pali Canon in depth, so many of the styles of teaching are so vastly different. It seems highly unlikely it was one figure. But this the Buddha's life has turned into a kind of instruction. And so whether or not it represented a whole bunch of individuals or one person who lived some 2,500 years ago, the story is important in understanding some of the core concepts of the Dharma. So the Buddha was born, as the story goes, into a very wealthy family in what was the warrior caste known as the Shastriya in uh, an area in northern Nepal, what is now northern India uh, slash Nepal, it was just inside of Nepal, but very close to the border of India in a place called Kapalivatsu. And the Buddha's parents uh, had plans uh, that he would inherit the role of his father, who was a very important, successful warrior, ruler. And part of this plan for the Buddha was that they wanted him to be a very confident ruler, unblemished by any disturbing concerns or doubts. 
And so in an interesting strategy, the story goes, they surrounded him with sensual pleasures, attractive people, and entertainment. Apparently in his retellings uh, of his uh, life before awakening, he talks of parties and musicians performing while he ate. He talks about having three houses at his disposal, one for the major, there's three major seasons of the year in, in India. And so, you know, one for the rainy season and one for the, uh, especially for the heat season. And so despite all this wealth and comfort and uh, having all his needs met, it's very clear that the Buddha never felt any true peace. He never felt satiated by the pleasures and indulgences of the palace. So at age 29, I believe it was, on an infrequent outing from the palace, he, while roaming around Kapalivatsu with attendants, uh, became aware of, in a very deep way, the amount of suffering in the world around him. He became aware for the first time, extraordinary that he was 29, that of just the suffering of illness, people decaying, people dying, even in this time in India, charnel grounds where they would place bodies to wait for cremation were uh, visible. So he saw a lot of death, disease, uh, suffering, old uh, age, and people who were very infirm. And he was very, in his own words, struck deeply by the realization that all the riches in the world and the privileges of his life couldn't protect him from these eventualities. And the unreliability, the ineluctable uh, distress that uh, faces us all hit him very hard. And, but this, this uh, very, very sudden, uh, disturbing realization was mitigated somewhat when he saw a person meditating in deep absorption. And it said that in seeing this, he realized that peace of mind was possible, but that it didn't come from consuming and acquiring and uh, just constantly uh, indulging in things that felt good. Uh, there was another way. And so the Buddha left the palace at 29, and he set off for a region uh, not too far away in what is now India called Vasali. And in Vasali, he met, <coughs> excuse me, two yogic teachers. These were deep meditation practitioners who were very respected in the Buddhist time. The first was an um, individual named Alara Kalama, and Kalama taught the Buddha 
how to focus his attention internally in such a way that he could empty his mind of sensual distractions and concerns. And then he met Udaka Ramaputra, who taught how to attain states, states that, of perception and awareness that were profoundly altered, states that we might now call kind of liminal states of disengaged perception. And in both cases, both teachers, Kalamas and Ramaputra, basically stated at the end of the Buddha's studies that he had mastered their techniques. And yet the Buddha, while grateful, uh, noted that these techniques helped him find peace only when he was meditating. But the rest of the day, uh, there was still suffering and stress arising, and that it wasn't really uprooting the causes of suffering. He still felt at times things such as uh, greed, anger, delusion, and so forth. So the Buddha wandered in the forests and jungles around Vasali, and he encountered five ascetics who practiced a very extreme form of uh, spiritual practice, which involved a lot of deprivation. Uh, their idea, which probably means they were Jains or uh, associated with Jains, was that they would basically try to consume as little as possible to burn off in their idea um, any distractions and any quest for any kind of ease or comfort. The idea being that the only place left to find any sense of ease would be to look inwards. And these individuals literally ate only a few lentils or kernels of rice a day. The Buddha became so emaciated that his, uh, essentially it said you could see his uh, spinal cord through his stomach. Uh, the depictions of the Buddha from this period and are very skeletal. And in his own words, he was near death. And finally, uh, he became very dejected about this other approach. Instead of indulging in sensual pleasures, he had moved now to absolute extreme abstention. And he disavowed this absurd asceticism and decided that the only way he could possibly have any chance of enlightenment would be if he consumed what he called the requisites, the right amount of food, the right amount of shelter, the right amount of clothing, and so forth. So he, it said that he had a bowl of rice and um, that as soon as he started consuming the right amount that allowed him to have a healthy body, not in any indulgent way, nor in any ascetic uh, way, but just found the right amount, 
he became enlightened. He sat in beneath a tree in Bodh Gaya, and over the course of a series of profound insights, saw the nature of suffering that led from one form of existence to the next, and what causes suffering, which was craving, uh, and so forth. So in this uh, enlightenment, the Buddha went uh, and at first had a great doubt that he could uh, teach it in any way that would be, because so much of it was experiential. But he did encounter the five ascetics that he practiced with, so he gave it a shot. And it's in a very important teaching known as the Dhammachaka Pavatana, which is the setting the wheel in motion, which is essentially considered to be the Buddha's first real teaching. And in it, uh, he says that there are two extremes that are not to be practiced by one who seeks true peace of mind and liberation. The first extreme is devoted to chasing central pleasures, and the other extreme is deprivation, just essentially completely doing without. And the Buddha said, it's only through avoiding these extremes, the middle way was realized by, and he's referring to himself, an awakened one. And then he says something like, uh, through this, uh, middle way of not living a life of either extreme, we pursue the Eightfold Path, which is right thoughts, right intentions, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right efforts in our endeavors, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So those are the Eightfold Path. And all of them involve finding a ground between indulgence and deprivation. And, and so the middle path, uh, though, is far, far, far bigger than what it might sound like uh, from this introduction to it. But this is how the Buddha first encountered the idea. Now, the middle path isn't about looking for halfway or median solutions. It's not like the Buddha taught, instead of eating all the time or half the time, or all the time or none of the time, you eat half the time. That would be ridiculous. Or instead of speaking all the time or speaking none of the time, you speak half of the time. That's clearly not, uh, that's absolutely has nothing to do with what he taught. So the middle path doesn't mean the exact middle between two extremes. It means that we take a moment, we ask ourselves, what are our long-term goals? And then we reflect on what would be a healthy amount of any endeavor, any behavior, any um, acquisition or consumption or whatever to achieve our spiritual goals. 
it may sound obvious to avoid extremes, but we see it everywhere where people vacillate between one um, uh, black and white approach to the other without uh, taking the time to find a different way to approach a situation. So let's look at a bunch of examples. I know many people <coughs> who bounce back and forth between using social media on their phone as much as it feels good. And I'm not even sure it really feels good, but as much as they just feel they want to. And generally, it feels actually pretty bad. The more we use social media, eventually the worse we feel. But then when certain individuals uh, want to stop or want to uh, address this problem of being addicted to one's phone, then they go to the other extreme, which is uh, jumping off of all their social media, disavowing any use of social media, or if it's TV, any TV, or if it's whatever endeavor, um, gaming or whatever, they, they go from just using as much as it feels as they, as it feels, you know, as they want at any moment to the other extreme of just completely cutting it all out. And of course, the problem with this is that almost invariably, if we cut out things, we now haven't, one, taught ourselves how to engage with certain activities skillfully. And two, people very often when they abstain entirely from something, they wind up back on it and wind up back on social media or using TV or whatever as much and as they wind up indulging again. So they go from one extreme to another. We see the same thing, of course, with people who binge eat and then go on restrictive diets and so forth and so on. Um, people who are vacillating between going out and partying all night versus staying in and not going out at all, rather than learning how to go out for a reasonable amount of time where they just spend time really connecting with other people, maybe seeing a show, but not uh, consuming certain substances and staying up all night. Um, other examples, a uh, classic is trying to change other people's views. Uh, you know, people who send us all kinds of weird stuff or, you know, bizarre political uh, uh, and frightening opinions or uh, behaviors versus going to the other extreme of cutting them off or just being resigned and just letting people do whatever they want, no matter how harmful, there's always another solution, another middle path, which is setting boundaries, being very clear. I want to keep you in my life, 
but if you send me any of your political screeds, I'm not going to read them, and I'm not going to listen when you start talking to me. I'll just walk out of the room, but I'm going to still keep you in my life. It just, you're going to be in my life with certain boundaries that make our relationship possible. Other, so many other examples of how we uh, choose the middle path. Some people, after they go through breakups, they avoid all the neighborhoods and places where their ex might be. Other people's linger <laughs> where their ex might be or scour their Facebook pages. And of course, the reason they're scouring their, their ex's Facebook page is to see that photo of their ex with somebody new, because we do like scrolling for suffering. But the middle path is simply to not uh, go out of our way to frequent the places or the pages of an ex, nor to avoid. Just simply go into the neighborhood when it's necessary, or if an ex's uh, thing uh, pops up on your screen, just if you want, read it or just keep moving. We don't have to block them necessarily, um, but we should definitely not go out of our way to fully get lost in the wormhole of uh, constantly monitoring one's past uh, attachments. Um, another example, couples who ambush each other whenever they're irritated and start to have arguments or uh, try to bring up difficult issues versus couples who push everything under the rug and don't talk about anything. Well, what's the middle ground there? Well, the middle ground is Gottman and so many other relationship therapists and clinical psychologists note is that we set aside a certain time in the week where we have relationship discussions and we show up and we talk about what's new in our lives and what we'd like to do in the future. And we make requests of each other and then we express gratitude for each other. So we're not in a relationship where the moment you or your partner become irritated, you feel permitted just to uh, criticize and attack, nor do you completely uh, put aside or become resigned to the fact that there's something that's you're struggling with, you simply have a time with your partner where you connect during the week. That, Gottman's research shows, is the most effective way, and that's the middle path. Um, when seeking happiness and security, so many people dream of becoming famous, admired by all and uh, are driven to try to make everybody like them. Or there's others who simply value extreme self-reliance, have a dismissing attitude, and their dream is to live in complete isolation without having to deal with other people whatsoever. 
And of course, the Buddha taught neither. The Buddha taught the middle path is to have the right amount of reliable friends, what he called Kalyanamita, people who would co-regulate our emotions. And we happen to know from the uh, evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar that the right amount of close co-regulating friends is generally around five or six people. Of course, many people have less than that. But if you have at least a few people that you can call and talk about your internal experience, rather than getting caught up trying to be known by and liked by as many people as possible, which is the great Carl Rogers showed leads and, uh, oh, um, REBT's founder, I can't remember his name, but also showed leads to nothing but suffering, nor the extreme of self-reliance and not caring at all about connections with other people. We have just the right amount of people that we connect with that can are safe to hear our internal experience. And then the other people we might be friendly with and compassionate with, but we're not relying on them for regulation, nor are we uh, pushing them away. Uh, in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha talks about um, the middle way constantly. It's not about speaking too much, nor too little. It's about speaking the right amount i.e. when we have something useful to say. And there's many, many suttas where the Buddha says, ask ourselves, is it true? And uh, is this the right time? And is this useful before we say things in most situations? Um, meditation. The Buddha taught both concentration and mindfulness. He didn't want people to always be engaged in concentration meditation, nor did he want people to always be engaged in mindfulness. Concentration is good for tranquility. It keeps ourselves focused on a soothing topic, uh, wishing uh, well-being for all or focusing just entirely on the breath or focusing on um, a pleasant visualization versus, on the other hand, just watching sensations arise and pass in the body or uh, observing moods change uh, and so forth. The Buddha taught that we do both. We balance between the two. We find the right amount. In livelihood, many suttas, the Buddha talks about not overworking at the expense of our well-being and our ability to practice spiritually, but at the same time, not avoiding hard endeavors that will allow us to feel that we are productive members of the world, but finding the right amount that so that we can achieve our long-term goals, which uh, is essentially uh, self-actualization and our own well-being. Uh, and so far, the path in and of itself balances internal awareness, knowing when to meditate and focus within, 
as well as external concerns, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And so many of the Buddha's teachings were about how to skillfully engage with other people as being very much as important as meditation. In fact, many suttas, the Buddha says, without both, you're never going to change, you're never going to achieve any form of liberation. Um, so, and this can be a difficult path for many people over the many years of going to retreats. Uh, I've met people who both uh, when they go on retreat, they get driven up the wall, they don't have enough distractions, they uh, literally can't sit with themselves, they find any form of solitude to be excruciating, uh, and they just want to be back in the world in their in the mundane life. But on the other hand, there's others who over time just become comfortable only being at, on retreats and whose lives in the mundane world where they have, you know, a apartment with roommates and they have to at times engage with work or uh, family really fall apart. So we have to be able to balance both endeavors. In psychology, we don't avoid triggering uh, necessary uh, issues or uh, memories, nor do we rush in head first and re-traumatize ourselves or um, flood us with um, painful memories that we cannot in any way meaningfully regulate, we find the right amount of stimuli and the right situations that are safe to expose ourselves slowly to some of the memories and a very safe environment. And we know how to what's called bear in and then back off. Bearing in and backing off, which me means, for example, if someone has had, for instance, a, a war vet has had a really traumatic uh, experience, we might want to just tackle a very little bit of the event, and we might get to the place where the person starts to feel um, a, a sense of uh, where he's just on the, or she's just on the verge of flooding. And then we might back off and focus on um, secure visualizations of people that care about us or images that show that we're now safe and that we're no longer in combat or, and so forth. When people have traumas, you we give them um, safety cues, and orienting techniques. So when they slowly begin to expose themselves back into situations, it's not staying away and avoiding, nor is it 
jumping in, it's finding or what's called titrating just the right amount so that we can work with um, a set of stimuli that's triggering or activating for us, but we don't become overwhelmed. Many uh, people refer to this as a dimmer switch. A dimmer switch is not the addictive desire to throw the off switch and just get rid of painful experiences or feelings through drugs and alcohol and so forth, nor is it avoiding, nor is it, I'm sorry, diving in and just uh, rushing back into something that is extremely painful. We find a, uh, a way to create a sense of safety and we slowly move into that which needs to be explored. Um, now, I would like to say that despite all this teaching on the middle path and how it's, uh, it can be very important to avoid extremes of either indulging or cutting off, there are certain times in life where cutting off is important. I'm, uh, I have 27 years of recovery from alcohol and, and drug abuse, so I haven't in 27 years uh, consumed alcohol or uh, party drugs for sure, uh, but that's just my and the approach of many. There's other people who use harm reduction and learn how to drink or use drugs in a way that is less dangerous for them, but it's totally appropriate for me to abstain. And that in no way has sabotaged or led me to, um, to use cutting off or abstaining in areas of my life where it's not necessary. So for some though, drink, drugs, gambling, uh, or, you know, for others, eating certain kinds of foods, which could cause horrific allergic reactions. We have to know when to, there's certain things we have to cut off. Another example of the middle path is in, can involve what I call taking turns. And so um, this brings up my, my own philosophy, which I call the Chinese food teaching. <laughs> uh, bear with me. Um, in, there's times in a relationship where one person might want uh, Korean food and their partner might want sushi. I'm just bringing up these, I, these cuisines out of the top of my head. And then people get back and forth where person A wants Korean and the other person wants sushi. And then as an attempt to mitigate the situation, they choose Chinese food. That means nobody gets what they want and that they eat something that night that they're not really, neither were interested in eating. This is no criticism of Chinese food. It's just an example. The solution here, the middle path would actually be if person A who wanted Korean food simply says, okay, tonight we'll eat sushi and tomorrow 
I'll get my Korean food. That way, both people get what they want, but they don't try to find some wishy-washy other solution that in no way makes either happy. And there is one of my deep philosophies about marriage. Uh, another, um, other ways the middle path helps us transcend to extremes is rising above uh, something and observing rather than indulging or cutting off. For example, anger. When anger arises, the teaching is not to act out on it immediately, to ride with whatever impulse arises, say whatever we're, we're wanting to get out, trying to make the other person feel the way that we are, nor is the teaching to suppress anger uh, or distract ourselves from it until it hopefully goes away. The teaching of uh, Vedanu Sati is to simply observe it in the body, to be with it, to allow anger to arise as a very strong physical impulse. And once it starts to pass a little bit, we contemplate what actions or what things do I need to say so that in the future, um, the likelihood of this feeling of being not seen, not heard, not considered, or uh, being in some way mistreated will not arise. And the same thing could go for feelings of loneliness or, you know, rather, or, or feelings of sadness, rather than acting out. Very often when people feel lonely, the first thing they do is they call up someone they shouldn't, or they engage in something to distract themselves from the loneliness. They watch TV or they try to do anything to push it away. Otherwise, what we do <coughs> is we observe it. We observe what is loneliness actually in the body. What I've found is that very often it's a cover for lots of old feelings of abandonment um, and so forth. Lastly, there's a final, or I wouldn't say final, but there's another way that the middle path shows up in the Dharma. The Buddha talks about not engaging in unhealthy lines of thought or debate that no matter how they're solved are a complete and utter waste of time. And so uh, rather than... Uh, the Buddha says, rather than trying to debate with um, uh, another or with ourselves, one topic or from or extreme from another, we just simply don't engage whatsoever. This is, for example, the Buddha teaches uh, asking ourselves questions, what was I like in the past? What will happen to me in the future? What will others think about me? The Buddha suggests that these kind of reflections are uh, essentially smoke screens, don't lead us anywhere, and that better reflections are, right now, what am I doing in my life that's causing me needless suffering? So 
in in all uh to find the middle path we have to have right intentions we have to seek lasting uh peacefulness for ourselves and others both in the present and in the future and when we have the right intentions then we look at all the different uh engagements behaviors uh, anything that in any way might be troubling or sticky and we ask ourselves what is the right amount of uh social media, food, uh, drink, shopping, uh, social gathering, that on the one hand allows me to have an enriching life or a life that sometimes has welcome distractions, but in no way interferes with my creative growth, my real, true, deep interpersonal connections, my spiritual practice, my health. Now, for those that would like to read more about the Buddha's life, there are countless books, and most of them, I can tell you from firsthand experience, are unreadable, but there are some good ones that I like. Um, for those who want to hear it from the Buddha's mouth and some of the original teachings, but edited in a clever way, Bhikkhu Nanamoli wrote The Life of the Buddha, and that's pretty comprehensive, but it's from the Buddha's, many times the Buddha's own words. Um, on the other hand, for a fun, wonderful introduction to Buddha, Buddha the Buddha and Buddhism, and the context, a really wonderful fast read is Buddha by Karen Armstrong, uh, who was not a Buddhist, is not a Buddhist. She was a Roman Catholic sister who then uh, became a Christian mystic. And she's written many, many books on different uh, religions and always does a wonderful job. Um, Buddhism a concise introduction by the great Houston Smith is one of the classics and has a great fast overview of the Buddha. Jack Kerouac, this is a wacky one, wrote Wake Up in 1955, which was a life of the Buddha. And surprisingly, Kerouac put aside his drink and his self-indulgence long enough to do a pretty stand-up job trying to uh, tell the life of the Buddha. And then there's many other texts that people like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's Path of Compassion and so forth. So that's it for tonight's talk. Now we're going to meditate on the middle way, the middle path, and we're going to be putting some of the insights in practice. So find a really comfortable seated position. Relax. And if you'd like, you can lie down or sit in the most uh, just uh, relaxing way.
some teachers really focus a lot on the uh, uprightness of posture. I personally don't really think that that's the most necessary concern so long as you don't drift off and fall asleep being comfortable while you practice is a very good idea it will make it very easy for you to bring your awareness to your internal experience when we feel uncomfortable it's pretty hard to focus on internal sensations so once you have that good situation in place, reeling your awareness back into your body and finding the sensation uh, of the breath as it expresses itself in the body. My personal preferred place is in the belly. Abdominal breathing is associated with um, homeostasis, rest and digest. Uh, when people are very comfortable, they very often engage in long, smooth in-breaths and out-breaths. I like to observe the belly, my belly expanding with the in-breath, allowing the breath into the body, the breath energy, the breath itself. And then as the breath is released, the belly subsides. So it's a little like a balloon inflating and deflating. If being in the body right now or focusing on the breath is in any way difficult, you can use awareness of sounds arriving in your awareness, don't go out hunting for sounds, just receive the sound and just pay attention to each sound of the present moment. Don't reflect on any sound that's past. Anticipate any sound that might occur. Don't visualize what might be causing sounds. Just hear the sounds that arrive at your in your awareness as if you've never heard anything like them before listening with as they say fresh ears like you're a visitor from mars and have never heard what it's like to be in your space hearing what you're hearing 
And the practice is, is just to relax and allow the mind to rest on whatever anchor is for your attention. So it could be the expanding and contraction of the breath and the body, maybe at the tip of the nose, or in my case, the belly, or for others, the chest. Or the sounds. Or if neither are working, just repeat a very simple phrase in the mind. May all beings be peaceful, happy, free of stress, or visualize. An object or place that feels soothing, don't change it, just keep it in your mind's eye. In early Buddhist practice, staring at a candle, closing one's eyes, and then recreating the candle was a practice or visualizing a very simple shape and filled by a color, slowly expanding the shape. These are all concentration techniques and what we're doing is we're settling and soothing the mind. And the practice is to bring back our awareness relaxing into whatever our anchor might be. And your practice should be one absolutely safe, by which I mean in no way is any form of self-criticism or self-judgment welcome in your practice. Nothing but trying to make each part, returning from a thought, being with any experience, just be as gentle. Don't try to look or attain any states. Just be with your life as it is right now. Just this.
occasionally asking, where is my mind right now? And if it's not present, focused on something that's actually occurring or keeping your meditation theme in place, just bring in the most easeful way possible, relax back into the present, the sensations of this moment, finding your anchor, and just resting attention on it.
And now for a contemplation uh, or two involving tonight's theme. First, bringing to mind some endeavor, some behavior in our life that we might want to investigate can be the usual culprits of social media, TV, food, shopping. going out versus staying in, and so forth. And first, knowing what our overall intention or goal is, what, we're, what are we hoping for in our spiritual practice and life? Are we looking for opportunities to deepen relationships or grow creatively? Or feel a greater sense of purpose in the world? Or have more time to investigate internal contemplative practices or find true peace. Whatever right now we'd like to broaden and expand into our life, knowing what that might be, and then with that in mind, with that theme or intention in mind, looking at any endeavor in our life and just asking what would be the right healthy amount? How much? Rather than fully indulging as much as I like, nor cutting off entirely, is there a healthy amount? That I could allow myself to enjoy or explore these behaviors, what would that look like? What would it look like allowing myself to enjoy a show and then turning off Netflix or buying my self something comfortable, but not 
shopping in a way to soothe difficult emotions. What does it look like for me to engage with any activity in a healthy way? Visualizing yourself following through with this approach, seeing yourself engaging just the right amount. Knowing what that looks like in your mind, if you can. And then for a second contemplation, visualize a relationship or bring to mind, I should say, a relationship that while is important, but also has elements that are tons frustrating and actually might cause feelings of anger or abandonment or not being seen or understood. And while you hold an instance in your mind where these feelings were especially strong so that we can be with, if we can, some of the feelings of anger, frustration, disappointment, sadness, dejection, whatever, and just being with. And if the feelings are very strong, back off a little bit, hear some of the sounds around you, relax your body, soothe, soften, titrate the experience, but still don't push away whatever feeling as it is expressed in your body. Soften, 
muscles around wherever you might feel. Whatever, if you have a jumpy attention, just settle the mind somewhat with bringing to mind a secure friend or remembering a place where we feel safe. And then returning to the feeling And once there's a sense that maybe some of the initial punch of the the resentment, disappointment, or whatever has been felt, and the feelings are would be hopefully a little less uh, strong and the impulses a little less hopefully severe. Instead of cutting off this relationship or just allowing things to be as they are without any change, what it would be a healthy boundary to set. How could we maintain this relationship, but also change in some way how we communicate, what is talked about, what do we need to say, what needs of ours have not been spoken. So thank you for your practice, and whenever you're ready, taking your time, slowly open your eyes and we can move into the